five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everybody. I'm coming from Hollywood, California today with uh, photographer Henry Hornstein. How are you today? I'm doing good. And uh, we've got a million things to cover, but I've been fortunate because I've been able to get a little bit of Henry's time here over the past hour when we were eating lunch. So I got a sneak peek as, as to what you guys are about to get. But the first thing I wanted to jump straight to, and we talked about that, that at lunch, is I was reading your Wikipedia page a couple of days ago, and it very casually in the first, first or second sentence mentions that you've done 30 photography books. And in fact, you've probably done more than that. But but it's and not only is is the the number remarkable, but the range of what you've been able to do. You've done children's books, you've done uh, ph photographic education books, and you've also done the beloved artist monograph. Many of them and done well. How is it possible to do that many books? Uh, Live to a ripe old age. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always wanted to do books and. I, you know, I, from the very beginning, and the biggest problem I had when I was starting out was that I had no work. <laughs> so doing, you know, no work worthy of um, doing a book. So I started doing instructional books, and it was a time when, it's hard to believe now, but there were very few photography classes. They were just starting to happen. And so I was lucky enough to write a book when I was in graduate school that hit that wave and uh, continues to be, you know, a good selling uh, textbook, uses a textbook sure. today, many, 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 many years later. <laughs> um, and so I did a few of those and sort of built up my personal work to the point where I did my first book when I was 40 years old. Um, wow. First book of photography. Yeah. And it was a book on the racetrack and horse racing called Racing Days. And, um, and after that, I just decided I was just going to do book after book. And that's all. I teach and do books. Uh, that's basically what I do in my life. It's pretty boring, but no, it's definitely it's definitely not. So we're we're, we're going to jump back to that teaching thing here in a second. But um, I just want to list three of the people that three of the instructors that you had while you were in in photography school. And for those of you who don't know, if you don't recognize these names, look look them up. The first one's Harry Callahan, Aaron Siskin, and Minor White. And I was trying to figure out an analogy of how, how that would relay into someone else's life. And it kind of reminded me of the fact that the Super Bowl was on last night. It was kind of like those three people are like having the NFL All-Stars come to your birthday party and play pickup football. It's like Minor White, Harry Callahan, and Aaron Siskin are like powerhouse people. Um, was this, did you know it at the time when you met them, or was this something that you stumbled into? Well, that's good. I mean, I'd really love to see those guys play football. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know what? I, I, think we, I think we could take them. You think so? <laughs> I think so, too. Um, well, no, they were well-known at the time. I mean, it, it, photography was a really small thing then. I, you know, don't mean to overstate it, but you can't. New York had three galleries that showed photography in the 70s. That's it. Wow. Three galleries. Uh, Museum of Modern Art showed work, but I doubt it whether... I don't know, but I doubt whether... Most of the other museums did, or at least not much of, not much of it. Um, so, you know, it, it was a little thing. You know, you, I mean, your comparison to football is uh, interesting because uh, it's true of a lot of sports, too. I mean, if you look back 50 years, football was a tiny yeah. 
you know, I, I'm from Boston, and it used to be the Boston Patriots. Yep, that's and they, right. They didn't even have their own um, stadium at first. I saw a game in Fenway Park uh, when I was a kid with my dad. Um, and I remember seeing the Boston Celtics, the basketball team, um, play in a 5,000-seat auditorium that um, they had to, in order to fill it, they had to have double headers. They had to have two basketball games professional wow. teams yeah with the great players of the era you know bill russell and bob Cousy, and you know and other Dolph shays and other teams and um will chamberlain and people like that they played in little stadia so it's not um you know it's a lot the world's become bigger in a lot of ways sure. and uh money is bigger than it was and opportunity bigger than it was and the world's more competitive as well. So um, to me, the book thing, back to have a book back in those days was really hard. You needed a publisher to do it. Mm -hmm. And publishers were just going to publish so many books, particularly when they figured out that they weren't going to sell very well. Right. Um, but they didn't sell well, and they cost a lot to produce. And the hidden cost, which they figured out years later, was they, um, the production side, the design and production, was very time-consuming, much more so than a novel or a book of nonfiction. So that added to the cost. A lot of designer would be their time, you know, mm -hmm. to do a book would be months, say, and uh, they could knock off several novels in that time. Uh, and so publishers didn't like paying that kind of, you know, paying that kind of uh, money and then losing money on top of it. So, um, so a few publishers stayed in, but not too many. And then uh, along came technology. <laughs> so um, like in a lot of things, it was a game changer. And so Blurb was sort of is the uh, Coke of colas. Um, <laughs> so it's the name brand for um, uh, is the first and the best and the biggest at the beginning of this whole uh, self-publishing on demand kind of uh, digital book. Um, and now there are others following it, you know, yep. but but. But basically, you now have a situation where you can publish your own book easily mm -hmm. and a really good good quality. You know, yep. all these um, on-demand uh, printers, Blur being, you know, the, the, still the top one, I think, um, they do a beautiful job, you know, and get better and better. We were just talking earlier about black and white, and the Blur black and white books were okay when they first came in, mm -hmm. and now they're outstanding. So they've made a lot of changes, too, as a, as a technology and as they've understood what people want in the market and, and all of that. But now you don't need a publisher to do a book. And uh, if people want an offset book, um, they may be able to get one from Blurb or somebody else. But, mm -hmm. but they could also, you know, go as a publisher does to China, to Italy, to, That's right. to yeah. Poland, to Mexico, to all these other places uh, because of globalization and technology. All these places have the same basic equipment. Yeah, exactly. They may not have the same uh, expertise or experience. That's right. Or longevity, but they can make books for and be very competitive in a market, which is, and you can get a really nice offset book done for relatively little money. How do you pay for it? Well, you could be rich. Yep, you that's could always good. Over, I'll take that I, one. I take that one, absolutely. <laughs> and it's kind of something you can rely on. Um, uh, wealthy or hard-working spouse. Yep. Well-paid yep. spouse. I'll take that, too. That's good, too. Yeah, yeah. That's take good both too. of those. Still looking for that. Um, <laughs> love's good, and I love it, but, you know, anyway. No. So, the lottery. Um, <laughs> you have the lottery. The lottery is an yeah. option. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, but we have crowdsourcing. 
So, um, you know, uh, my second to last book was done through Kickstarter. And I raised the money. A friend of mine and did the book in yep. Italy, paid for the book. Who designed um, the book? Designed by Ernesto Aparicio, the, who's, who teaches with me at RISD. Okay. He's an amazing graphic designer. And um, he's done my, two of my last three books. And, um, and did you go to Italy on your own? You went to press, press check. And did you handle yeah. the entire book by yourself in terms of printing? Yes, okay. with Ernesto. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Ernesto is very experienced. And what about distribution? Well, here, <laughs> I've got a garage, and, <laughs> well, distribution is the big issue it's, with it's, all of this. Yeah, it's the key. And one reason I'm here in Los Angeles, and I was in New Orleans last night, uh, a couple of nights ago, and San Francisco in a couple of days, is to do talks and sell books. Okay. You know, I mean, it's very similar, our, the model's very similar to musicians, and what they do these days, they go out on the road and they get a merch table and they sell books. Sure. Yeah. If you like your ba the band, you, you'll probably buy something from them if you can afford it. And I'm hoping the same thing will happen, you know, tonight when I give my talk, but also in general, you know. So um, it's, you know, I'm not sure it's a perfect model yet, but uh, you've got to kind of sell them yourself. I've got Amazon carrying it, um, which is complicated a little bit. But, sure, always. But, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, people buy them, but but not in great numbers. But, you know, photography books don't sell in great numbers anyway, with yeah. very few exceptions. And if you go with a publisher that will really publish your book, which is not very common these days, but if you do, you, you might get a royalty of a dollar a book if you're lucky. And if you sell a book at list price, you get $40 or 50 or 60 whatever the book costs. So you don't have to sell quite as many books to sure. recover some of that money. It's a challenge. The, the economic part is a challenge. But well, if you can get it paid for and it doesn't cost too much. It's, it's interesting to, for me to hear you say that because you have done so many books. You're knowledgeable about this. And I think it's really good for people to hear coming from someone like you who's done so many books. I've never done a traditionally published book. I've been approached a few times and have never done them. But to know that it, it's, a, it's a challenge. It doesn't matter how many books you've done. The, the field is a very different playing field today than it was. And uh, this is sort of a, a oddly misdirected question here. But when I was talking earlier about uh, Harry Callahan and Minor White and these superstars, a lot of times talking to students today, those are not the superstars. The superstars are the people with the largest Instagram following. So I just wanted to jet this in here before we talk a little bit about RISD. Is what, how do you feel about Instagram and things like Instagram? I got Instagram. I, um, <laughs> You're on there? I, I'm oh, yeah, on that's Instagram. Right. Some, uh, come on, follow me. me. Come on, follow me. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, to be perfectly honest, I'm not, I, I kind of like it, but... There's so much out there to do. I mean, I know I'm sounding like an old guy that just won't embrace the technology. I hope that's not the case. It's just I have so much else to do. And my career isn't so – I don't think I'm going to be an Instagram star no matter what I do uh, because that's just not the kind of photographer I am. I made my career in other ways. Sure. So I don't think it's as important to me as it is for some photographers. Yeah, yeah. It uh, doesn't mean it's not good. or. But my uh, studio assistant – said to me at one point, she said, you got to be on Instagram. And I said, okay, do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so we decided what we would do is just put my book, work it for my book's existing pictures up. Sure. I didn't think I was going to be able to make it. I don't like to put out pictures I'm not proud of. <laughs> so, um, you know, if I had to shoot every day for it or every other day, whatever, you know, yeah, it would be I, hard. I'd have some crummy pictures up there and I'd, I don't want to do that. 
So I, the pictures I put up are all curated because they've already they made my books. Sure, they've gotten that far, so I like them. It's a portfolio in, it's a in portfolio. a way. Portfolio. Yeah. That's that's exactly what it is. And people, I've gotten work through it. I've sold prints through it. I've gotten reconnected with just all the social media advantages. You reconnect with people you knew. Yeah, it's nice, mm-hmm. but but you have to decide, you know, to prioritize your time. And like a lot of people, I'm busy. So um, you're really busy. It's not. I'm pretty busy. <laughs> and one of the reasons why you're busy is that you teach at RISD, yes. and you let's see, part time 1981, full time 1993. Yes. Long time at RISD, and for those of you who don't know, that's Rhode Island School of Design, and in design photography world, RISD is a big deal. It's been a great school for for since it, since its inception, basically, and it's a big deal. How? What was it initially in 81 that you said, hey, I want to teach? Because we had a little discussion I'm going to bring up here in a second about the education world and art books and museum shows and public installations and stuff. But what was it that brought you to teaching in the first place? Well, I always thought I was going to teach. I studied history originally. I went to the University of Chicago, um, studied history for four years, got thrown out my senior year. All right. Anything <laughs> anything you can talk about? Uh, I can talk about anything, but I think that it's more interesting left there, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Let's just say uh, I wasn't welcome anymore. And okay. I was, But I was starting to get into photography, so... Um, Although I was disappointed in some ways, um, it was okay, and um, because it freed me to pursue photography, which I may not have done, because you know I, I thought I was going one way, and to change directions is hard, but I was kind of forced into it in a way. And um, anyway, so um, I bounced around a bit, and I decided to go back to school in photography. And Rhode Island School of Design was really close to where I was living in Boston. I could actually, and I did, um, commute to school. It was about an hour away in those days by car. And, um, and we didn't meet that often anyway, so it wasn't that hard. Okay. And I went there undergrad for a year, and they gave me a degree. And then two years graduate school, they gave me a degree. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I left. I did some other things. I always thought I would teach, and I did. I had a job at Harvard. was my first teaching job, an adjunct job a couple of years, then at UMass Boston for a couple of years, and then uh, I went out to try to freelance on my own, a miserable failure, and I went to work for Polaroid, which uh-huh. I did for two years, and it was the greatest thing I ever did. I, I remember really resisting doing it, and uh, my girlfriend at the time, Mary Lynn, saying, uh, take the job, you're depressed, you're broke, you're cranky, you're, she listed quite a number of uh, <laughs> unattractive features that I was apparently uh, showing. And uh, I took the job, and uh, I remember my last uh, resort to her uh, was, um, but I'll have to get a suit. And she looked at me uh, sternly, like you look at a dog when they've been bad, and <laughs> said, I'll buy you the suit, take the job. So I took the job very reluctantly, and it was the greatest thing that ever happened because I, living in a school, going to a school, a great school like RISD, nevertheless, you, you're in a bubble. You're, you've got a little world that you work mm-hmm. in. You've got your teachers. I had great ones, and I admired them enormously, and they knew this stuff. But they knew, you know, an inch where there was a mile. The uh, industry is just huge. Yeah. And so I got to do amazing things. I went to, I edited a magazine. I assisted Gary Winogrand. I 
took, uh, and I assisted Elliot Irwin, great photographers of the yeah. era, I um, had dinner with Ansel Adams over and over again, uh, not just me, but, you know, in a group. And um, because I was a Polaroid, not because he thought I was a great guy. Right, right, right. Uh, but although he kind of liked my girlfriend, so that might have been part that's, of it. That's and, helpful. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I took Robert Frank to lunch at the racetrack at Suffolk Downs. And you wow. know, I had all these amazing experiences, which I could do because I was with Polaroid. I mean, no one cared about me. They cared that, what, that I represented Polaroid and what I could do for them, I guess. But um, so, I mean, Robert Frank went because Polaroid invi you know, invited sure. him. So, um, and I just learned all these things that I just had no clue of. And I went back to the world to... to um, to work again, and I was offered a part-time job at RISD, just a class, um, in 1981, and I took it because I thought, well, I'm not getting Polaroid any money, money anymore. I'd better get some kind of stable income. Sure. Even if it wasn't a lot of money, it was something, and um, and that's what it started. And then it just grew. I, I like teaching. I don't love freelancing. I'll do it. I like the work, but I don't like depending on it. So um, teaching was more just my style of life more than my style of work, I'd say. So I want to go back to the failure in a second, but just as a side note, in 1997, I'd been freelancing magazines for about four years, and I was not happy. I, I was getting work. I just was not liking the work. And at the end of the year, I looked at my portfolio and was like, I don't really like any of these. These are not my photos. They're other people's. Mm -hmm. And Kodak came looking for someone to work as a tech rep in, in Southern California. And through Amy and through some other people, I got went to the job interview and I got offered this Kodak job. And it was the same thing. I walked in dressed kind of like I'm dressed right now and there were all these middle-aged guys in suits and me. And they didn't want to hire me, but this one guy like went berserk and I think just to appease him, they hired me. But it was the same thing. Suddenly I was with all these amazing photographers that I'd heard about and read about for decades. And they're like, oh, you're the Kodak guy. Come on over. Exactly. And that's how I got yeah. to meet. Like most of the photographers in the city was, was through that. But you said something earlier that I'm intrigued by, which is you did the freelance thing for a while and you were like, this is not happening for me. Was it, and you just alluded to the answer to this, but was it, it wasn't because you couldn't do the work. It was just not the kind of work you wanted to do and not the lifestyle you wanted. Is that accurate? Well, I don't know if I could do the work, to be honest, because some, I was thinking actually just today as I was crossing the street, <laughs> In Koreatown in L.A., I saw a scene that reminded me of a Bruce Davidson uh, photograph, and he was one of my heroes, uh, Bruce Davidson, the great Magnum photographer. And I remember seeing him, uh, hearing him speak a few years ago, and he said that he said the same thing. He said he wasn't really a good assignment photographer, which I found shocking because he's such yeah. a great photographer. Yeah. But he said, I'm really good when led on my own. But if I have to uh, satisfy somebody from the get-go, then I'm not, it's not, I'm not the guy. Of course, he said that when he was retired. He probably wasn't saying that exactly. <laughs> when he was looking for when work. He's still looking for work. Yeah. Um, but, um, but I can see that. I mean, you know, it makes sense. Some photographers are really good assignment people, and they can really get the job done. Like a one-shot, you need a picture that's really going to kick it. Yeah. They're great at it. Um, but I think uh, that's not my thing. You know, I'm much better at choosing my own assignment and um, and pursuing that. I, uh, the book that I just published is called Shoot What You Love, and that's what Harry Callahan told me to do. That's where the um, title comes from. And he said, um, 
you know, shoot what you love. Even if you get bad pictures, you'll have a good time. Yeah. And um, and I thought of that. It may be he was just being kind of flip, <laughs> but I decided to take it yeah. for what it was worth. And that's kind of what I've tried to do uh, most of my career. So <clears throat> we talked a little bit about this earlier, but I went to SPE for the first time probably, let's say, roughly 10 years ago. And SPE is Society of Photographic Education, and I really didn't know much about it. I, Blurb sent me there, and I thought, okay, I'll go. It's another event. And when I walked in, I saw all these photographers who were from the academic space and inst who were instructors and in teaching at places like RISD and, all these, and a lot of other art schools. And I noticed that there was an unbelievable percentage that had book deals and museum shows, and they were doing public art installation. And me being from more of the commercial advertising editorial side of photography, where every single photographer I knew wants a book deal and a, and a museum show, but very, very few are able to attain that, suddenly I was into the education world and I was like, wow, this is, this is who is getting all of these books and shows. And I was so astounded by it. Because at the same time, the commercial advertising world kind of looked at the education world and was like, oh, well, those are people that are teaching and we're out here shooting and I should have, you know, some book deal. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. And we talked a little earlier, this, these are just like separate tracks. These are different, uh, is, is, it, is it as simple as that of just like, these are just two different um, tracks and, and set of connections in the industry? Yeah, I think it is because um, a commercial shooter or editorial shooter, especially these days, as you pointed out, um, they rarely get to stretch. They usually have a short period of time to do something, then they're onto something else. And that's not the best way to develop a large enough body of work to become a book. Um, and I think your attitude changes too. I felt that even at, and you may have felt it when you were at Kodak, um, but at uh, Polaroid, I began to think my whole, uh, my whole sensibility was changing because what I needed to value in order to do my job was different than what I needed to value as a photographer, as a creator. Mm -hmm. And um, I had this great piece of um, <laughs> advice uh, from Human Resources. There was a woman there I knew a little bit. She was an old hippie friend of mine. And she, um, I, was, I, I was offered a promotion at Polaroid, but I'd been thinking of quitting the job, going back to being a photographer. And... Um, so I went to see her and, you know, laid out my dilemma to her. I mm -hmm. said, you know, I'm afraid if I take the job, I can't really, I got to commit to it for a while. I can't just leave it. That wouldn't be right, but I don't know what to do. And she said, I'm going to use another name because uh, uh, I don't want it to sound like um, I'm slamming the guy. I really am not. But um, he, my boss was named John Doe. So she said, uh, in five years, do you want to be John Doe? And I said, no. I mean, I could see his life in front of me, and mm -hmm. I didn't, it wasn't the life I wanted. Actually, I liked the guy, but, and he gave me a lot of breaks, but I, it wasn't the life I wanted. And uh, she said, well, quit now, because yeah. that's the good news. If you're successful, you'll be John Doe. And if that's not what you want, then yeah. you want to get out now. Time to go. Yeah. Time to get out now. And that was a great piece of, I thought, career advice. That's what I did. I decided, I, since I, I really didn't have a feel that I could be a good assignment photographer, I, I decided to, my dad used to say, now, Henry, <laughs> when you have money, you have to spread your uh, investments out, a little here, a little there, a little there, so if something goes bad, you've got something to hold it up. 
Well, I had no money at the time, <laughs> but I thought about that, and I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense for a career. So if I had a little teaching, if I wrote some textbooks or tried to, if I did a little freelance work, mm -hmm. and if I did my own work, and I was also doing some stock photography, some licensing things, um, that maybe I could cobble a career together with that. And that's basically what I did. Yeah. Um, as one thing went bad, the other thing you know, might have gone up. or it, Anyway, it kept me going. Yeah. I think when I came into photography, which was in the early late 80s, early 90s, I, there were still quite a few people who were sort of doing the one thing. And there were, even, there were even people who within that one thing were doing one thing. I remember that at the time in fashion photography, cross-processing, Kodak EPP was like this really hot thing. And there were people who that is all literally all they did. And when digital came and EPP was like, well, we don't need that anymore. All those photographers were kind of gone. Disappeared. Yeah, exactly. So let's transition a little bit here because I want to talk about projects specifically. Um, working in narrative, working, thinking with a book in mind. People ask me this question all the time, and so I want to ask you, which is, and I know there's probably not one specific uh, answer, but how long typically do you work on a project before you start thinking, all right, maybe I have it? Well, a long time, uh, the short answer. The, um, nowadays, and for years now, I, I, part of this is that portfolio approach, I think, but... Um, if I get interested in a subject, the first thing I do almost after, maybe I shoot a little bit and decide I like it, uh, but really what I do at the beginning is I say, okay, does, right. this, does this thing have legs? Yeah. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I be engaged in it for a long time, mm -hmm. number one? But also, could it be an exhibition work? Is it exhibition worthy? Yeah. Is it, can it be published? Yeah. Is it book worthy? Is it even is it possible I could sell a few pictures, license a few pictures for a purpose? I had like three or four or five, I forget, um, boxes to check. And if I could check up all those boxes, then I would go in. And if I couldn't, then I wouldn't because um, time is precious. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I, I felt early on that I had just a few books in me. It turned out I have a lot more than I thought, but... But, um, but the other thing I want to say, and, and the way you frame the question kind of suggests it, and I know a lot of people think about it this way, but I don't, I shouldn't say I don't believe, because I, people do all kinds of things, and they work for people, different things. Um, but for me, it works best if I just shoot mm -hmm. and let, let it develop organically. Some people are very you know, very careful about what they do. I did a book called Honky Tonk about country music. And it might be my most well-known book um, or body of work. It probably is. And, uh, and I love it. And I did it when I was in my uh, 20s, most of it. Okay. Even though I still shoot a little of it now. It mostly was done when I was, I didn't know anything. And um, I just <laughs> shot where I could. I didn't make lists. I didn't ask permission. I didn't. You know, I didn't do any of the things that a professional would do. Right. Or that I would do now. I would, because my time's precious, so... Um, but in those days, I mean, I was just like, no one wanted my time, so I was on my own kind of... You had a lot of it, yeah. I had a lot of it, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I would just go and shoot, you know, and I remember someone asking me, you know, if I was to do it again, could I do a better job? And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking that I probably could, 
in a way, do a better job because I'm more professional photographer, better photographer. Um, but I don't know if it would be as heartfelt. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it would be a better job, really. You know, I guess it would depend on it would depend on the audience because, like you said, if now better can mean more refined for a specific audience, like those boxes that you were having to check. Whereas yeah, yeah. when you're 20, you don't have any boxes. You're there are checking. No boxes. You're you're running around in the field like this is the greatest thing ever. Not asking permission, just shooting. Because even when I started in photography, there was the the flexibility in the field and the freedom in the field was way better Much than it better. is now. Yeah. And so I didn't have people like, who are you? What are you doing here? They were like, hey, he's got cameras. Come on in. Come on over. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very different, different time now. Yeah, no, I agree. But also I think, um, I think that, how can I put this? I I think the question of whether you just feel like it's, this is going to sound very new agey and I don't mean it that way. No, let's lay it on. I mean, I totally believe in, let's say inoculating for measles you know i'm not a new age kind of guy so if i (laughs) i sound like it i'm sorry but or i'll I'll take it if you like that sort of thing but um i i do think you kind of have a feel for things you know it's and it doesn't even have to be deep feeling you know you just feel when things are working and when they're not Mm -hmm. i mean i i I feel that ways too for me and i'm sure for a lot of people like if i'm in the classroom if i'm doing a good job someday or if i'm doing a bad job not getting through somehow. I feel it. I mean, I can tell. I'm not completely insensitive to that. And when I'm shooting, it's the same thing, you know. But I do find, <laughs> this is like, um, I find I make a lot of mistakes. And I cover the mistakes by just pulling out a couple of things. I did this happened last week. I was working in um, New Orleans. I was okay. teaching a school, a high school kids, fabulous school called NOCA. New Orleans, oh, I can't remember. Oh no, Some no Christian Academy. No, no, it wasn't. It was an art school, high, art high school, public art high school. No cuts, fabulous. Anyway, big uh, shout out if you're around there. Try to get your kid into that school. It's awesome. Anyway, so I'm shooting the kids. I'm taking pictures of the kids, and I was shooting with this medium format camera uh, that I just bought, film camera, and I was shooting with uh, in Fuji slash Polaroid Insta, Instamatic film. Yep, yep. And, um, and I was just doing both and everything, and then I, I mainly shot the Polaroid so I could give them something, but I was kind of liking the look too, so... Um, and then I realized halfway through, I bought the camera on eBay and had not tested it. Bad idea. <laughs> and I was screwing up the focus. And of course, I couldn't see it because it was a film camera. And I like, I don't know what it looks like. Maybe I pulled it out. I, I have a feeling I didn't. <laughs> I'll let you know in a few weeks. But, um, but then I went back and I looked at the uh, instant pictures yeah. and they're great. I mean, I know they're great, sorry, but they're, yeah, they're good. you're happy with them. I'm very happy with them. That, thank you. That's much better. So, um, you know, so here you go. I might have blown, like, a dozen rolls of film, and then at the end of the day, these, like, secondary pictures may have turned out to be the, the blessing, you know. So I find that happens to me a lot, you know. I feel like a little bit of a savant sometimes where I'm just, like, you know, back into something. But I think it's partly personality that some people let things roll and some people try to control it more yeah and the p and you should go with your personality because that's where you're going to have the best success i think one one thing that that's happened to me before and i'm sure it's happened to others but sometimes when you've done photography for x amount of time and you've 
you know, I've, I want to be a magazine photographer and then you do that and you're like, I want to shoot commercial and you do that. I want to do a book and you do that. Sometimes you start refining down what it is you're doing with all these outside parameters and the actual act of just walking around and making pictures or looking at a story gets filtered through all these other filters. And there's a fine line of saying, these are filters I need to have. These are essential. And then this other set of filters, which may just end up ultimately being a distraction. Right. And I think you're absolutely right on the money when you say that you can feel it when things are happening. You can, you can feel a scene whether you're welcome or not, number one. Two, whether or not you, you can take photos without getting you know, your ass kicked. Right. And three, if you're, if you're getting it. And there's that, that feeling. It's such an overwhelmingly wonderful feeling to know when you, you, know, when you just got something. Even if you're shooting film. And you're like, you know what? I'm pretty sure I just got that. And then the whole rest of the day or until that film comes back, you're just like wound up waiting to see those nags. Oh, yeah. What is the film digital ratio for you these days? Um, more and more digital. Um, uh, you know, probably, all the kids are going back to film. I know. That's why I'm going to digital. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. Lo I lost my dark room. That's one thing. Okay. Um, I moved and I haven't been able to replace the dark room. Um, and I'm trying to shoot uh, these little films. That's, you know, more than I'm shooting still anyway. Um, so I'm kind of changing my practice. Um, I probably have 10, 12 more books in me if I could get them out, but still pictures. And that's my a lifetime. So why do more when I really am enjoying doing the films and their video? They're all Canon video. Yep. Um, and they look great. And um, I'm learning. So before we jump to film, I want to go back for one thing. Well, one more project question, which is, how do you know when you're done? How do you know when you have oh, what you exactly need? I know exactly. I'll go out and shoot, and I, I can't see anything else that I haven't seen. Yeah. And I wrap it up. I know very, I'm very sure about that. <laughs> I was talking to a friend yesterday who worked on a project for 10 years, and he happens to be back in the country where he did the project, and... I look at the country and the light and the landscape. And I'm like, I'm like, man, you should be out. You should be out. He said, I tried. I went out and I just, I've done it, seen it. It's 10 years. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. I think that's reasonable. Yeah. 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 I agree with that. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to jump ahead here. You, when did you start making films? Well, um, it was before cool people were making films. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, cause now pretty much you're a commercial I've photographer. Trying, I've been trying to make the films for a long time, but the first film that was semi-successful in that, it was kind of finished was maybe 20 years ago. Um, and it never really got finished, but it got semi-finished and I liked it, but I really didn't know what I was doing. What I realized early on was, you know, it's kind of obvious, but uh, film is a collaborative thing. Mm -hmm. And um, we're solo actors as photographers. So you really have to get with people who know what they're doing. Um, it's possible that someone can make a film with a DSLR, mm -hmm with a little microphone over it. Yep. Um, I know you can, but do you really have those skill sets? And I, I haven't seen a lot of evidence that a lot of people do. That's all I can say. Maybe if what you're trying to do is very simple and to the point, maybe yeah. then. But I, I mean, I would make a Hollywood film if I knew how, frankly. I well, like finished films, slick films. Oh, yeah, me too. You I have know. a question though. So the first film you made, you said you don't, you didn't have any idea what you're doing, which I, you know, I think I, that's totally reasonable. But w w how long was the time frame from "Hey, I want to do a film" to the film is done, approximately? Oh, it's faster than still photographs. But what? Twenty years ago? No, it's fine. Um, 
Well, when I say I don't know what I'm doing, I don't really, this is what my filmmaker friends say to me, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and partly I agree with them, most parts I agree, but, but I do know something, you know, I've learned something from still photography. I know how to pick a subject, which to me is the most important thing of all, mm -hmm. and I know how to pursue that subject. And I have a sense of what ought to be included, what's important. And, um, and I'm pretty good at finishing up things. So those are all things I brought to the table, even though I don't really know anything about making films. Mm -hmm. I, I know other stuff, you know, uh, that's related. Um, so I got with some friends, my friend Bill Anderson, who's a really great and very experienced film editor, helped me a lot, you know, throughout this. Mm -hmm. um, as he's made fun of me, he's <laughs> uh, lovingly. Um, he, you know, he's, he's really carried the ball for me, or with me, I should say, not for me. Um, but we worked on a little film about a musician called Pre Preacher Jack, a local musician in Boston. And then um, it was fun. It was not wildly successful, but there were good moments in that. And I liked it. I got a little hooked. Then I made a movie about burlesque, um, Murray Hill, the um, uh, burlesque comedian, and um, I think he, he works now for um, Dita Von Tees. Um, and we made that film, and it, that was good. Bill and a cinematographer friend, Hilary Spira, and I uh, made this film. It was pretty good. Murray was all into it, and then he wasn't. <laughs> so that's a longer story, but um, it's 17 or 18 minutes and it looks good where it is, but um, I think we have to get back to work on that. You know, I, good, I'm sorry. Oh, you said something interesting to me uh, about the 5D. You know, you can make a film on a 5D Mark IV with a microphone. And when the 5Ds first came out, you know, Amy, my wife, is getting all these like screeners from film festivals and they're sending her these discs. And it was the first time I ever remember putting a disc in, and this was a you know, full-on, quote, feature film. And you realize in about five minutes, maybe a little longer, that the whole point of it was the filmmaker now had this camera called a 5D that was, it's an unbelievably beautiful look. You suddenly had shallow depth of field in the middle of the day. And the screeners that we were getting were just two hours of eye candy. There was The stories were terrible, the scripts, the acting, everything was bad. It was just based on this revolution of technology. But what you said is the, the most important thing in filmmaking is you got to know what story to tell. That, it's, it's so critical, and I think that's the thing. So if you imagine partnering up people who know the story to tell and then giving them this new technology, that's why we've had these, like, a handful of just remarkable films in the last five years. But that, I mean, how do you tell what story? I know you, you said shoot what you love. Is there any other thing that you look for when you say that is the story I'm going to tell? Well... No, not really. <laughs> it's just, you just want to love it. I want to, um, usually it's just, I'll read something, I'll find something, I'll meet somebody. I'd like, um, I could say I didn't intend to do this, but I'm kind of noticing that almost, except for a new one I'm doing now, I'm trying to stretch it, but it's not even that different. Um, it's carried by one character. Like one character is holding the film together. And, um, and I think that's just the way it goes. I think part it's simpler that way. You know, it's kind of, because I don't have a lot of experiences or resources. It's not like I can, I can pull a crew together, but I'm not sure I can pay them. <laughs> um, and it's hard. Distribution is, you know, non-existent virtually. 
Um, so I, I don't have a really good answer for that, except I'm just uh, winging it half the time. So <clears throat> one of the things I've noticed in photography, especially with things like with the advent of social media, is we have a lot of work that I would, con that I would call average. But the people behind it are more skilled at marketing and advertising than they are actually making the work. And so you take very average work and suddenly it's like you hear about it, read about it, and people are like, oh, this is an amazing body of work. And then I look at it and I think, well, so-and-so did that five years ago and it was way better, but he wasn't marketing. He was a photographer. He was out shooting. How, what, in a world that's sort of average, how do you define good? Or when you see something and you go, that's good, that's great, are there characteristics that sort of follow through that? I, I think was that's it just been true in photography and probably every field for that matter. Um, um, timing is a lot, you know, um, ability to get work out is a lot. Um, I think who you know is important but are a little overrated. Sometimes that can be a disadvantage as well as an advantage, you know. Um, I don't know, it's... Um, this is it's, this is lousy career advice, but but it's kind of what I believe. Um, you just go out, do the best work you can do. Don't be stupid. Hope for the best. All right. Don't you be know, stupid. Hope for the best. I like that. I like Dale Watson, who's a wonderful um, Texas, Texas honky tonk singer. Um, was on the uh, I interviewed him once or something. He was on the uh, the Letterman show. Um, and which was a big deal for Texas regional singer. Um, um, and uh, Dale was uh, talking to someone and saying, well, were you nervous? I mean, we're, you know, all these millions of people and everything. He said, no, I wasn't nervous. Uh, yeah, I, I just looked at the band and I said, okay, guys, just don't suck. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, they didn't do great. That's so. it, just don't suck. I think just I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that. that. <laughs> Okay, last question. Yep. Who's doing it right these days? Who do you look at and say, I love their films, I love their stills, I love their books? Anybody who jumps out at you? Can be any, any genre. No, no, I understand. I'm just trying to. Um, I tell you, truthfully, my favorite artists are musicians. They're not um, photographers so much. So who's, who are the top musicians Well, I, but And I have terrible taste in music, I'm told. I like old-time country music, and I know that it's kind of come back a little bit, and there are younger bands that are, you know, quite good. Um, and I do, but I, most of the, mostly I listen to the older ones, you know. Um, the younger bands are in more, I think, in bluegrass music. Um, I think traditional country music, a lot of the singers... I mean, in what we know as country, they get very heavily produced, and you don't hear the you don't hear the musician; you hear the producers. Okay. And I think that that's true of true of a lot of you know a lot of our culture now. That if someone's considered valuable, potentially valuable, then a lot of people come in and give their opinions, and it becomes um, creativity by committee which is the worst thing ever. Mm -hmm. And in the old days with country music and a lot of blues and so forth, nobody cared about how you did if you were a musician because there was no money to be made. Yeah. So they just let you do what you do. And uh, to me, the same is true with younger photographers. Um, it's become an industry, it's become a business, so people are very um, tight about it. 
they're very concerned. Like, oh, if they put out a book or a body of work and it's not well received, then they're finished. And I don't know, maybe that's true, but I don't think it is. Um, I don't either. So um, I think you have to take a shot. You have to follow your, you know, shoot what you love or whatever you want to call it. Follow your heart. They're all cliches. I know that. But it's kind of true. Um, I remember <laughs> uh, interviewing a country singer named Del Reeves once. And he was a pretty successful country singer back in the day. Um, but, you know, he was talking about, I said, well, I said to him, how do you pick your songs? He wasn't a songwriter. He, people wrote for him. I said, how do you pick your songs? And he said, well, he said, you know, I listen to a lot of songs and I, it's got to be a song that really moves me, that I feel, you know, that I can get behind, that I believe in, everything. And then he said, for example, take this song. Uh, it was a song called Women, Women, Beautiful Woman, something like that. It was just a terrible song. Uh, <laughs> but was the song of the year that year, like in country music. A guy named Don Gibson wrote and recorded it. He said, Don Gibson offered me that song, you know, for, and I hated that song. He said, I would not record that song in a million years. I, didn't, I had no feeling for it. And I said, well, do you regret it now that it's become, you yeah. know, yeah. hugely successful? And he said, damn right, I regret it. <laughs> <laughs> I regret it every day I wake up, he said. And, you know, it's like, well, you change your mind when you're uh, faced with the opportunity, I guess. Absolutely. But, um, but I think especially for younger photographers, and for that matter, most photographers, not a lot of people really care what you do but yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like you have a gallery. Even if you have a gallery, they're probably not that invested in you. Even if you have a publisher, they're probably not that, you know, they might be nice and work for you a little bit, but they're going to be invested in people who are really going to bring them money, yeah. succeed. So on the other hand, one hand, you're kind of on your own. On the other hand, you're kind of on your own. It's good news and bad. But if you're on your own, you should be doing the work that you care about. And oftentimes work comes back to you years later that, you know, that book Honky Tonk work I was telling you about that I did, it took 25 years to get a book published. Mm. And I've been doing more than that, 30 years. And, um, you know, and then it ends up being my best book, in a way, not my best, maybe, but, you know, the one that's uh, done me most good, you might say, professionally. So you just don't know. You just do what you do and do your best job and don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. That's a perfect ending point. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking this time. I know you have no, to get up no, and give no, a no, give no, a talk no, tonight. Much no, appreciated. No. I'm just going to record the, you know, send back the rec. <laughs> yeah, Can I borrow the tape? <laughs> we'll just play this back. It'll be easier, and then we'll go get a drink across Good the street. Good idea. Now you're talking. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks a lot, Dan.